I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Wadundi and Bububun people of Wudichup in the southwest Bujara region in Noongar also known as Margaret River. I acknowledge their continuing connection to the land, waters and community. I pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. This is episode number 78. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with the authentic man himself, David Chambers. David empowers men to create the exciting and deeply connecting dating lives, sex lives, and relationships they long for by developing their true authentic selves. As a dating and intimacy coach, coaching men for over a decade, David guides men to create authentic attraction, build deep emotional connections, embody healthy masculinity, and experience connected connected sexual intimacy. By helping them build self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and self-leadership. And you can find David on his website, which is theauthenticman.net, or on Instagram at theauthenticman underscore. And in this episode, the two of us talk about finding your purpose and how to balance this with your passions, as well as the most common self-imposed barriers that men face when they're dating. And I also asked David about his experience as a black man in the UK doing this work in the spiritual and men's work communities. So I had a really great time actually chatting with David. I I ended up doing his podcast as well, which I highly recommend listening to. But yeah, it was just a really fantastic opportunity to connect with him and uh, learn about the work that he's doing and yeah, just resonated with a lot of what he had to share. So I enjoyed listening. Sorry, I enjoyed uh, having the conversation and I hope you enjoy listening. Today, I'm going to be discussing an activity that some of you might find embarrassing. However, I assure you, there is nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't seem to me that you have to go straight to intercourse or that you have to go all the way at all. You can't have sex in a good relationship without both partners being involved in contraception. I've got, uh, I guess it's more of an invitation, man. I I usually say it's a question, but it's actually more of an invite. Uh, And I'd love to invite you, man, to share a little bit about, I guess, what it is that you're doing, what work you're doing. And I'm really interested in what people are passionate about as well. So I'd love to invite you to share what you're really passionate about these days uh, and just give you the floor for a couple of minutes, mate. So that's my invitation to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cam. What am I really passionate about? Mm, I guess this is behind everything I do, really, is what I'm really passionate about is men and connection, right? Because it comes from my own story, I guess, to go back a little bit in time, it makes a bit more sense, is, you know, I go back probably 10, 15 years and I was having a lot of relationships and, you know, in and out of relationships, cycling through relationships, one year end, one year end. You know, and in between that, there was a lot of sleeping around, a lot of sex, um, a lot of dating. Um, and I was disconnected in my relationships, right? I'd often be with with women. I've dated women. And they'd be like, I don't understand you. Like, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're feeling. And I used to be like, I don't know. What are they talking about? 
I don't understand. I'm, you know, and I didn't understand them and it created like conflict and strife and upset and anger and infidelity. And like, it was miserable. Relationships became a really miserable cycle for me. Right. So there was that side of, of what was happening for me. And then there was this thing that was sex that I loved. You know, I loved, I'd always had this real deep interest in sex. I remember being like a teenager and there was these shows on uh, BBC, like BBC, BBC One show shows like this. Um, be like Channel 4. There was, I think it was called Sex Tips for Girls. And I used to sit and watch it. You know, I would have been probably anything from like 15 to 18. And I'd sit and watch this and be like, oh, wow, there's this thing called the clearest. And, you know, people do these different things. I was just really like uh, fascinated by learning, right? So I was learning about sex and I was, you know, sleeping with a lot of women and learning through that. I wasn't just, when I say a lot of women, it wasn't just me sleeping with like woman after woman after woman. I may sleep with a woman for months, years even. You know, it's a real kind of learning experience together, like learning what they what they like, what I enjoy, trying new things, introducing things. But I might be doing this with three or four different women at a time, right? So this was like my very early years. Plus I was cycling out of relationships that were full of stress and turmoil. So this kind of came to a head where I, when I was in a relationship for four years, it was actually starting to, I was starting to navigate relationships a little bit better. And I think this was probably about five years ago. I've just traveled halfway around the world with my then girlfriend. We're in Bolivia and we break up in a hotel room in Sucre, right? I'm devastated. She's devastated. And I, I make a kind of pact to myself. I was like, this, I'm not going to allow this to happen again, right? I'm not going to allow it that I end up in a relationship and I can't communicate what I want. I can't communicate my feelings, my, my emotions, my needs, because I'm scared of upsetting someone else and ruining the relationship, right? I don't want to suppress what I'm feeling anymore. So being in, in, in uh, Bolivia, I then found myself in Peru and I'd also planned to do some plant medicine. I did in, in, in Peru in the Sacred Valley, which was a wonderful experience. And one of the big messages I got there was to just really connect with people, open up, open up what I was feeling, open up to the people that I was meeting. So for the next six months after that, I was just connecting with everybody, like men, women, everyone I met. I was just like connecting, talking, opening my heart, listening to them, what's going on for them. And it really taught me that we all want to really deeply connect, right? We really want to feel other people and we feel, want to feel the good and the bad, right? We don't mind. We just want to feel people, right? We want to feel something when we interact with people. And I took that into coming home back to London life. And I saw a lot of my friends were unhappy and depressed. There was a lot of depression when I got back. I remember seeing maybe five or six friends and four of the five of them were very depressed, very unhappy. And I was just so present with them, right? Just because my journey had led me to just being with people the people, literally friends would spontaneously cry. And these are men, you know, these are men in their mid thirties. I'd say, how are you? I'd look at them like, how are you? And they just break down in tears and be like, I'm miserable. I'm just finished my divorce. I'm unhappy. So all that happened. And a friend of mine uh, who I started my podcast with said to me, let's start a podcast. Let's start, you know, talking about this dating stuff. And he goes, Dave, you know, all this stuff about sex and relating that people just, people just aren't aware of, right? So I started talking about it on a podcast and it just started as like, let's just give out some free information. I know all this stuff, let's just give it out. And kept doing that. And then people come and said, oh, can you coach? Can you coach me in this area? You know, I'm having trouble with it, like, developing intimacy with partners or I'm having trouble creating emotional connection with, with women that I mean. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll coach you. And then I guess 
that kind of transformed into into now where like I'm coaching people, I run workshops, I run courses. Um, yeah, that's that's it. And obviously, my podcast, which has been has been amazing to to create, as as you know, having a podcast is amazing. You meet some wonderful human beings doing work all over the world. Um, so I'm just deeply passionate that men can have deeply connected relationships like with themselves. Cause I think it starts, it usually starts with oneself, right? You have to know what's going on for you, your wants, your needs, your desires, your feelings, your passions, but also with the, with the people they meet because we've grown up in a world, especially as men of, of disconnection, right? And it's heartbreaking to see, you know, heartbreaking to see, like I, I'm a, I'm a believer that a lot of the mental health issues that men are suffering now I think one of the biggest problems in it is that men are disconnected from the people they meet and they're with and also really disconnected from themselves and their, their kind of true essence and, and soul. Mm, beautiful, man. Thank you so much for sharing, dude. And I'm, I'm curious, you didn't mention this, but something that I know is quite common in like the men's work space is like reconnecting to your purpose or just kind of like finding your purpose, right? It's very um that's very prevalent in like the mythopoetic men's movement kind of space you know the masculine archetypes and stuff you kind of really have to find your purpose i know david data kind of talks similarly about it but i'm wondering is um is the work you're you're doing or even like the work you've done personally for yourself has it been to help kind of connect to your purpose your own personal purpose yeah yeah and it's it's been interesting because in many ways like when I came back from my travels, I was just hanging out with people for the first three months. I was like, I can't work. I can't face going back to, to work. I can't face going back to that place. Right. So I just said, oh, I'm just going to connect with people. So I was just meeting up with friends and family and spending time. And a friend of mine, about six months after that, he was like, Dave, you just seem a bit lost. You seem a bit lost. I said, okay. Then I started the podcast and the coaching and and a lot of people have come to me that are friends of mine or people I haven't seen for years have just kind of popped up on Instagram and been like, hey, like you seem like you've really found your thing, your thing to do. And it, it's funny because my, my friend Ahmad, um, he said to me years ago, I remember maybe 15 years ago, he was kind of my first pupil really, you know, he came to me as a very awkward young man struggling to, to connect with women and we became friends and I kind of schooled him how we can create connection from authenticity and love. and. Um, he said to me years ago, he's like, Dave, you know, you're born to do something around sex, right? He's like, you love sex more than anyone I've ever met, but you have such a love for the people you're with and the love for kind of transmitting this information. He's like, you're born to do something like this. And I remember saying to him, nah, man, there's no money in that. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, man. And um, I, that, I resonate with that, dude. I resonate with that a lot. Um, especially the the story um, that you shared around, like just kind of putting information out there and then having people reach out and be like, hey man, no one else is really talking about this. Can you give me some more personal guidance? I need just a bit more advice, you know, something that's a bit more specialized to me. Can you coach me? Can you help me out through this? And that echoes quite a lot of my own experience as well. I was just starting to talk more about things online, started to be a bit more open about it, shared what I'd kind of read in different places. And people just started going, you know, via online messages saying, hey, like, I need more specific advice. Can you offer me? And I'd like, yeah, yeah let's do a session. And it'd be like, just for free because you were my mate or whatever it was. And then from there, just, you know, the light bulb moment went off and I was like, oh my God, like people actually need help. And I've got a little bit of wisdom to share. Like this could potentially be something here. And, and then just, uh, I guess like getting that snowball rolling uh, into a uh, into 
not necessarily a hobby, but more of like a business and treating it as such. And um, and definitely um, definitely finding my purpose through that. And I guess my agenda for asking you the question about purpose was because I'm kind of um, I want to ask a follow up question, I suppose, which is uh, something that I'm curious and interested in is um, the difference between or even the similarities between your purpose and your passion. Right. Um, my my kind of well, I guess before I share my thoughts on this, I'd love to ask you, man, point blank. Do you think that your purpose and what you're passionate about, not necessarily you personally, but just kind of in general, do you think purpose and passion are the same thing or do you think they're two different things? I think they, they for me, mm. I think they can be the same thing and they can be completely two different things, right? Uh, you know, like I can think of, there's a footballer I always think of, right? From years ago, he was, a, you know, for those in, who know soccer, football in the UK, um, he played for a team called Tottenham. And I remember, I never get an interview I read. And he was like, I hate football. I hate it, right? And he was a top level player, you know, international, you know, and he was like, I hate it. And I remember people were like, oh my God, you can't say that. That's terrible, you know? And it really kind of got me thinking, it's like, okay, he does this thing, he hates it. And he talked about, you know, he had all sorts of philanthropy that he did back, I think he was Cameroon, he's from Cameroon and he did all this stuff. And it's like, that's the stuff he's really passionate about, right? So I, for me, I feel like your purpose and your passion can be two different things, but they can also be just the same thing, right? But I feel also that for your purpose to really, to drive forward of your purpose, there has to be an element of passion in it because you will struggle to keep going. The passion is like fuel, you know, it will keep you moving in a direction in the hard times, you know, in the times that, you know, for, for men like us that no one wants to coach this, you know, you, you speak to men on the phone on, on zoom calls or you're like, yeah, you know, these are the problems you have. They're like, I'd love to solve these. And they're just like, then they just ghost you. you they disappear. They don't really want help where you think, Oh man, like, is this the right thing? Because your passion will keep you going. So do I feel like you need to have one to have the other? You know, the more I, the more I'm speaking as I unfold this, the more I feel like you need a good you need a good amount of passion in your purpose. But you can also be passionate about multiple things, can't you? You know, like I'm really passionate about family. You know, I'm really passionate about men. I'm passionate about connection. I'm passionate about my my partner, for instance. Whereas you know, my family isn't really part of my purpose at the moment. You know, but I also see that the purpose changes and evolves over time. You know, one, what my purpose is today, it could change next week. You know, really, I can see in a world where things can move that quickly. So, yes, purpose needs passion. Purpose changes, but so does passion. You know, we live in an ever-changing world. So it's, I definitely feel like you need a healthy dose of passion inside your purpose. Cam, I'd love to hear what, what do you think? Well, I kind of, um, the, the way that I frame this, and I guess the reason why I wanted to ask you is because I kind of think about this in terms of, dating and attraction and the you know the the way that purpose is often talked about in these men's spaces is like um the masculine right the masculine find your purpose as the as the you know embodying that masculine energy and that's what will create attraction to you know uh with the feminine right the feminine will be attracted to a man or or the masculine who's in his purpose who's you know got that strong you know is driven all that yada 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 um and i'm like that's all well and good to create attraction, right? To kind of create that that magnetization. But then on top of that, I suppose, is like 
your passion is what creates or your passion for your purpose or just your passion in general is what creates that like sexual chemistry is what creates that spark it's what creates that like pleasure right because oftentimes being driven and purposeful and and you know following your purpose and being on like being on purpose right that quote being on purpose is um can be can be pleasurable but i oftentimes think that it's framed within like these conversations as just like the emotionless kind of um stoic just thing that you do right that thing that you get up in the morning to do there's not a lot of like pleasure and enjoyment and passion behind it just kind of like this solid thing that keeps you grounded um which is great because that creates that kind of fundamental um i guess like the the analogy that's coming to mind is like um a fire right building a fire and your purpose is the logs right that you that you build the fire it's nice and strong foundational uh and your uh your passion i suppose is the match right the spark that lights the the logs on fire and and creates this um i guess the the fire in that analogy the actual flame would be like you know the, your light right shining through um but it's that that passion piece which is what creates that like sexual spark and that that chemistry between you and whoever this person embodying that feminine is and um and i often think that's kind of forgotten in a lot of the men's work spaces i suppose where purpose is really emphasized and you know put your purpose on a pedestal it's like what about fucking getting juiced up and feeling passionate and like sensual and energetic about your purpose or about something else right you're obviously like we said your your passion doesn't have to be connected to your purpose you can be passionate about a lot of things um and i think that's like where if we're talking about developing that deeper kind of sensual pleasurable connection and spark with our partner whoever our partner is um like if we can get passionate about something that we can bring that passion like passion's contagious right it's it's, it's um something that like our partner can pick up on and they can feel fucking juiced up and and connected to that passion as well and they can bring that into their body into their experience so that's just kind of like some thoughts that i had ruminating around and i wanted to maybe just bring that up in conversation and see um if that landed with you man or if you had any reflections on it yes yes it's, it's interesting because i i you know, like you said, David Day, and I'm a big fan of his book, Where the Superior Man. I think it's a, it's a great start for a lot of men, right? Because there's so many men who have no purpose. They lack any drive and purpose, right? And that also means they lack, a, they lack passion. But I've also met men who lack purpose and have a huge amount of passion for life, right? They're able to stay very in the moment. They can sometimes be that very Peter Pan uh, kind of archetype, right? Because they got, they love it. They love everything. Everything's wonderful and glorious and amazing to them, right? So they have a lot of passion. So yeah, that passion, as you said, is so important to when it comes to building, co-creating attraction, right? The one thing I always say though is like, if your passion is very one-dimensional, right? If your passion is only in your purpose, you know, maybe you're, you know, you're all about building schools for children, right? but your passion is just that you're so focused on just that thing. And there's nothing else really that you're passionate about in life. I think you can leave you in a state where you become a, you can be a bit dry because you know, you've, you've got this tunnel vision, but then everything else kind of falls away and nothing else really matters to you. Right. And I think there's, there's a danger in that side as well. And it's like, we're multidimensional beings, you know, like we can be passionate about a multitude of things at any given moment. And I think that's what gives us, that's what gives us color, you know, that's what, you know, but if, if we think of, um, 
you know, one with no, someone with no passion and no purpose, they're like a, um, a stick man, a stick drawing, right? There's nothing really there to see. You see it, you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a stick man. And then when you add some passion in there, some purpose, you start to get, you know, the beautiful colors. It becomes a water painting. You know, you look at it and it get, it, it emotes an emotion and feeling when you interact with it, right? So I think, as you said, I think there's just like, passion is really important, but I also really think we should just, we should also be... I always remember the phrase from years ago, be like a renaissance man, you know, interested in multiple things, because I think that really adds to our lives as well, you know, adds to our purpose as well, you know, like, you know, I've recently started to just dance more, right, in my front room or wherever I am. And I'm like, oh, that's added so much to my life, you know, so you've added a lot to my, to my coaching even. But that's completely outside of that. And it's like when we can get passion from other areas, it kind of adds to the fuel for our, for our lives, but also for our purpose. Mm, yeah, nice, man. And um, I'm curious, man, uh, with regards to, I guess with regards to dating, right? Because that's kind of what I know about your work, I suppose, is is kind of dating relationships, kind of creating um, that connection piece, I suppose. And uh, I'm, um, I guess I'm curious about what are some of the, struggles i know we kind of identified that men in general struggle to connect um but what are some of the maybe specific struggles with regards to connection with regards to dating that men uh well i guess the men that you see are are having what are some of those struggles can we hone in on some of them Mm, yeah 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 let's just reel these off because so there's overthinking. Overthinking is a huge issue for a lot of men. You know, they're very trapped in the in the, the masculine of working out, strategizing, and it leads them into a cyclical process of just thinking about everything, you know? And I think that doesn't just affect men's dating events, you know, their whole lives. Um, fear, fear of rejection, um, fear of not being good enough. That really comes up a lot. It doesn't The one of fear of not being good enough doesn't often... Um, leave a man's mouth just like that. Like, oh, I'm afraid I'm not good enough. It's often kind of layered underneath some other things. Um, lack of passion, I think, is another one, right? A lack of passion for for life or um, for just living, for interacting. A lack of curiosity. I see that a lot. A lack of curiosity. Your lack of uh, ability to... And this kind of ties in a little bit with the overthinking where... If you're overthinking something so much, all you are is sitting in your own head. You're not even in your body. You're not even feeling, you know, you barely realize there's another person in front of you because you're so locked in your head. So there's a lack of curiosity. Um, not knowing how to meet compatible women, women that are compatible with them. That's a big one. But underneath that piece is also always around values. Values, like delving into values. Like, are you living your values? You know, are you are you actually there? Um a big piece that I work a lot on is around emotions, around emotion, emotional expression, getting in touch with emotions and expressing them. Because I think that's a, when it comes to the kind of attraction piece, you know, and building that and co-creating that, a lot of men are, because of the overthinking, because of the stoicness that is bred into us uh, incorrectly, they're so disconnected from their feelings that they don't really know how to have a conversation that like, has peaks and troughs and ups and downs. You know, like I often give the analogy when you watch a movie, a movie is not just a linear process of facts and like information. There's all this emotion thrown in and there's all these highs and lows. And that's actually what we want to feel when we're with people. We want to feel, we want to feel their edges, right? We want to feel the good, the bad, the ugly. We want to know about that because it makes us human. Um, 
That's one thing. Perfectionism, wanting to appear to be perfect is a big one. Um, and I think uh, another one that comes to me in this moment is like the, uh, I call it the othering, but it's probably has a better name than that. It's where men are like, oh, well, all women like guys like that. Other guys, guys, are, you know, with money. Um, I've heard it all, man. I've heard oh, women only like guys with money. They only like tall guys. They only like black guys. They only like white guys. They only like, you know, anything that's other than you, you know, is outside, which is really around um, putting all the power outside of you, you know, putting all the power outside of you. Um, boundaries, nice guy syndrome. We did a wonderful episode with Robert Glover actually about that. And that's something that comes up a lot in my coaching. I work with a lot of men who, you know, really suffer from just being very nice, no boundaries, but underneath that is a lot of anger you know, and I like to help them to express that. So there's, there's a multitude of reasons that, uh, that come up. Yeah. Nice, man. And there's like, um, in a few of those, the commonality for me is like tapping into how you're feeling, right. And being able to express that, I suppose. And you said, you know, you do a, a lot of work on emotions and I feel like that, that emotional thread is kind of weaved through a lot of those, um, struggles, I think. And, uh, something that I notice, uh, I don't do a lot of work with guys specifically around dating and relationships. Um, I kind of focus more on sexual function, but something I do notice pops up um, in the guys that I work with with regards to meeting women because uh, they want to get to that point where they're being sexual so they can practice the sexual function stuff that we've been talking about, I suppose, um, is they have this mentality that like almost like that dating is like a video game right and then it, it, it's like they've got to do certain things to kind of get to the next level to uh, like the uh, i just remember pickup artist terminology is like escalate and you know it, it, like the mystery method thing of like you've got to get to a1 to a2 to a3 like it's very linear it's very video game-esque and it's almost like the first thing you said was like the overanalyzing and, and i feel like some of the guys that i've worked with definitely kind of fall into that category of like oh, what do i do what can i say what where can i touch her to kind of get to the next point along in this um in this linear progressive video game style journey so i can get to the final boss right which is which is um sex i suppose in in this kind of analogy um and I, so i'm wondering man is that is that a mentality that you've kind of noticed in the guys that you work with that kind of i just call it the video game mentality i guess that's all i can really say Mm, yeah yeah and it's like it comes kind of comes from the the pickup world and it comes from a very particular part of the the old pickup world which was you know mystery method um neil strauss and the work that he did many moons ago right and it is this idea that and i think what it is right is for, for a lot of men they've grown up in this what i like to call is like a technological age and especially if you, you work in technology, right? Everything is a very linear process. You do this and you do that and you do this. Then there's a, a kind of strand that goes off this way, but it comes back in here, right? We see everything as some sort of a process. Everything is a linear process. And if I follow all the steps, I will get to where I need to be, right? And it's also quite performative as well, right? Is that if I just perform all the tasks along the way, I'll get to the place I want to, right? Which I think is a huge problem around men and masculinity anyway, is that we're operating inside of, for our whole lives and you know a lot of men are like okay i do or i do okay at school then i get my degree and then i finish that i get a good you know good job and then i get a house and then i get a wife and then i have two kids and actually it leads to a disconnection from the actual realness of life and they become miserable and i think the same happens inside of of dating is that when they're obsessed with these processes and everything needs to be hit along the way 
they're actually disconnected from the person that's in front of them. They're disconnected what they're feeling. If they actually really want to talk to this person, they want to actually be intimate with this person, right? Because they're, everything is theorized and logical. It has to, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to, okay, I'm at the beginning now. So oh, I need to qualify and all this. I don't come across that as much as I used to. I used to many years ago because I did coaching in back in those days, in the days of the game. And when it was really rife, I did do some coaching then in terms of in-person stuff. But these days I find more men come to me because they've heard my content. They're like, okay, this is something that's missing for my life. Um, but there are definitely men out there who I've come across in the last couple of years who are still kind of, like you said, in this kind of uh, process-driven dating, you know, and which is a, and it doesn't help, especially if people have read any certain material that's online, it's very salesy based, you know, you need to do these things, you need to hit these things and then it breaks everything down. But it's the reason why men gravitate towards that is because it's clear and it's easy to, you just need to follow the steps. I just need to follow the steps and I'm going to get to where I want to get to. Right. And, and I'm sure you probably come across this a lot is one of the things a lot of guys don't realize is that one of the things stopping them in their dating life is, is fear around sex and, and their own sexual shame that blocks them from, from moving through to having beautiful and successful relationships and dating lives. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to chime in here with a plug for my online men's course. It's called Outperform a Porn Star. It goes for six weeks and it's all about experiencing multiple orgasms, overcoming any uh, sexual dysfunctions, reframing your whole performance mindset around sex to be more pleasure-oriented, we talk about communicating with your partner, being a sexual leader, and all of this amazing stuff. So if you're interested in learning how to outperform a porn star, head to my website, www.cam-fraser.com. Uh, let's get back to this episode. Yeah, I often get that like, or just tell me the steps that I can do to last longer. Like, I just want the clear, like, do this, do this, do this, do this, and that'll equal lasting longer in bed and it's like man if only it was that simple you know if only our bodies worked like we could push a couple of buttons and they were just like automated you know do the do the right thing and um and so i do notice that particularly um that step by step um which i quite like uh, as an analogy uh, it definitely in the in the in the guys that i work with with regards to sex and something that's coming through for me as well is like the entitlement piece as well right it's like not only do i do these right steps in order to reach this end goal whether it's sex or lasting longer whatever it is but like if i do these things and i don't have get the sex or last longer or whatever it is then the anger or the the um sense of uh you know like they've been wronged by by this person or by something right but they've been wronged by the universe because they bought the thing that comes through here is as an example is like oh i bought her dinner but she didn't want to have sex with me right the the whole that, that's a very like generalized sweeping analogy but um that's kind of the mentality that i think of is like oh, i did this thing for her why doesn't she want to have sex with me and if she says no like then it becomes maybe aggressive or that kind of sense of entitlement can can, can turn into anger and things like that and i'm wondering is that something you've you've noticed as well as maybe that entitlement piece with regards to the guys mm, yeah 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 because it's it's it's, it's inside of this kind of 
A plus B equals C, right? If I do this and I do this, then I'm going to get this. And it's really, isn't it? It's a really incredibly kind of sexist way to look at things. It's like, especially with the dinner, like I have this real, uh, I'll call it a bugbear around the first date and men paying. And I try my best, I, you know, through my platform, I speak to a lot of women, a lot of women come to me asking for help and, and just to, to hear is that a lot of men consciously and subconsciously become entitled exactly in the way you said, oh, I bought her dinner, right? So now she owes me, right? And a lot of women even feed into that by going, oh, well, I like it when a man pays on the first day. And I'm always like, you realize that is rooted in sexism right? It's rooted in the idea that women cannot provide for themselves. They cannot look after themselves. You can't even open a door yourself, right? That was the whole thing it's rooted in. It's not rooted in this feminine empowerment you're talking to me about right now, but you like to not pay for your first date because, you know, hey, everyone would like to save a bit of money, right? But they, from the men, when it comes around to entitlement, right, it's because ultimately we've seen all these movies, right? And all this TV where these, these steps were followed and this is how it went, right? How often do you see um, a movie where like a woman sees a man, goes over to him, he's like, hey, how are you? And he's like, you know, man, I've had a really hard day. And then they deeply connect over there. He's, his troubles and his strife. And then they maybe go for a walk and at the end. She, you know, he's like, you know, I've, it's been a really beautiful night and I'd love to see you again. But, you know, I don't want to come home with you tonight because I, I feel like this could really be something. You don't see that, right? So that's not the programming that we receive. So we've seen it so much through the media, through television, through, you know, even social media that, ah, if we do all these things, right, then I'm going to get to where I need to. And it's this very linear, very processed way of looking at life. And dating is not, is losing out on the the magic, right? The flow of actually how dating goes. Like I always remember, this is a slightly a side piece, is when I was in India a few years ago, I was there with my ex-girlfriend and it was, you know, it was a difficult, it was difficult to be in India, right? It's a love-hate relationship. I love the country. I really love it. But I had some very difficult situations around, you know, men basically in India. And I remember talking to a waiter I got to know, and he said, I said, oh, why, what is it with the men here? And he was like, you know, most of us have seen porn, right? Or we've seen like Western movies where the man walks into a bar, says hello to the woman, she's all flirting and like, oh my God, amazing. And then 20, and then 10 minutes later, they're in bed together. And for us, we watch that and think that's how we do. That's how you should be, right? If you, you meet a white woman, that's how you should be. And I think men, Western men aren't so much different, right? They're just, the programming isn't so conscious for them, right? It's sitting in their subconscious that they kind of become, um, they have this entitlement that this is, you know, once I do these things, I'm deserving of sex. I just need to pass some gates. I just need to tick some boxes. It's a bit like at work when we have, um, if you're in a corporate company, performance management. It's a tick box exercise, isn't it? I've got to do those things to meet this level or do those things to reach this level. And we just, you know, we've kind of create this immature masculine process driven world, right. Which disconnects us from the, the kind of the magic, the flow, the intuition, the creativity, the feminine, right. Inside of dating, but also in the rest of the world. Yeah, man. You know, what it reminds me of is like the idea, not the actual traditional way of thinking about it but like the modern idea of what it means to be chivalrous 
right? Like, oh, I'll open the door for this woman or I'll buy her dinner. Almost kind of like that nice guy mentality. I feel like maybe there's kind of a crossover between those two things. But like if I do the right nice guy things, right? If I'm the chivalrous gentleman, which, and, and this is just a very far left aside here. That's like incel terminology, right? The the supreme gentleman type thing. That's but that's for people that maybe go down that rabbit hole. Um, like myself on very rare occasions, I like to dive dive into that. Uh, but like that that gentlemanly, like chivalrous kind of like, oh, I'll do the knight in shining armor type stuff, um, which seems very noble, right? It seems like oh, I'm I'm doing the right things. I'm being the gentleman. But what that's like what that's kind of actually doing is almost like infantilizing women, right? It's it's boxing them in and and you know, treating them as like little uh, bubble wrapped princesses, right? And and putting them up on a pedestal and they you know and pedestals are inherently restrictive. I suppose you can't like it's a pedestal. You, there's not much else you can do. And and if you take one foot off, you know you 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 fall from that pedestal. I suppose so. Um, that's what I kind of see is like the that chivalry mindset that guys have of like, well, I'll just do, you know, I'll, I'll be this, you know, I'll be the hero in a movie, right? The guy who you know does all the right things and I'll get the girl at the end. Um, or I, I deserve the girl at the end, I think is maybe the, the mentality that kind of comes through. So um, yeah, that's definitely something I've noticed. Not so much, like I do notice elements of that with the guys that I work with, but where I notice it more is in those online spaces, you know, the salesy, guys text her this many things man the amount of ridiculous ads that i get through on my social media because of just the work that i do and the stuff that i post is like you know 25 text messages to send in order to get her to go on a date with you or whatever it is right it's just i'm like oh my god like treating uh, it comes back to i just always think of video games like just push the right button say the right things as part of this kind of first person video game and you'll get the end result it just is um yeah, treating treating dating and, and sexuality and relationships like this transactional uh, transactional thing. It just really, really grinds my gears, I think. That's my rant for today, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I agree. I think it's ultimately as a lot of men are, they just want to be accepted and loved, right? They are longing to be accepted and loved. So they're like, what do I need to do to be accepted and loved, right? And they're like, if I do all the right things, I'll be accepted and loved, right? And whenever it doesn't happen, they get angry, right? And that might be they are angry externally or they get angry with themselves. Like it's the whole, it's the whole thing around, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in the UK around how men interact with women and how women are unable to say no to men because of their reaction, right? And I was a member, you know, that a few years ago where I, I would be dating women. And maybe I'm like, hey, like, you know, date's not really well. Let's go back to my place. And they'd be like, um, oh, you know, I don't really want to. And I'd be like, okay, cool. That's fine. And I remember one woman saying to me afterwards the next day, she was like, you were, you were really cool with that. You're really fine. I was like, yeah, yeah. It's an invitation. It's not an expectation. And I, and I think this is where a lot of men get into is that they've done all the right things, right? And they're expecting, they have this expectation that the woman is now going to quote unquote put out, right? So when she doesn't, because he's expected it and he thinks he's done all the right things, the entitlement creeps in and then the anger comes out. And this is where the nice guys become angry and they become, you know, they can even burst into to rage and violence, but it's like, it's, 
because of the fact that they're, they're unaware of the underlying motivation for what they're doing, right? They're, they're just kind of, you know, on the surface. They're not getting to the depths of what's going on for them. Yeah. And I think you um, you hit the nail on the head, man. It's like they want to, and I guess, I mean, and you said this before, it's like it comes back to connecting with yourself, right? It's like that's a lot of the work that I do is just like, you know, recognizing that you are your greatest lover like you will have sex more times with yourself than you will with another person throughout your life and and like what's your relationship like with your own body with your own sexuality with your own emotions you know and um there's a there's this piece of um like and and you said this as well like connecting to your emotions and guys have this fear i suppose again like it's it's comes from media comes from wherever these stories of like oh the the guy who's emotional and feminine and who expresses himself doesn't get the girl um right that's the kind of media uh, mainstream media kind of narrative from movies and stuff but um but like what i'm advocating for guys is not to become like emotional messes that cry at the drop of a hat it's to it's to tune into your emotions and to to like you know regulate them i suppose like how do you how do you regulate rather than like trying to push the you know push the lid down and and suppress all your emotions can you allow them to to come up and express in a healthy way or you know to um to you know there's some times maybe we need to suppress an emotion because we're doing something else that requires us to be kind of present in that and not have to deal with a certain emotion but are you able to like you know do some healthy regulation so that you can revisit that emotion at a later date and um and, and you know process it then and allow yourself to feel it fully then uh that's kind of what i mean when i talk to guys about like being emotional it's not uh, there's this kind of mentality that guys have or maybe this image in their head of like oh it just means i'm going to be this wet puddle on the ground and it's like no man that's not what i'm what i'm getting at here and i'm wondering do you notice any of that kind of fear at all with regards to tapping into emotions that guys are like oh i'm going to become this feminized emotional wreck yeah definitely especially when you you know you meet men who have um gone down the road a little bit of the whole red pill stuff and like yourself, like I've, I have, how would I put it? I haven't gone down that road. I have observed the road and seen what's on the road purely for my own need because of the work that I do, right. Is to understand what's going on down there. Right. I've been down the forum. I've been on the reddits and stuff. And it's this idea that any, this really the, 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 the heart of this issue, right. Is that the feminine is bad. The feminine is weak, right? So anything that identifies a man as being feminine is like, well, well, no, 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 that's, I shouldn't be like that because that's not what I should be, right? So when I start to work with men, it's like, I, I really, they don't want to necessarily get to their emotions and they don't know why they don't want to go there, right? They often, it's, it's that whole, oh, you know, that's not me. That's not how I am. I'm not like, oh, I don't feel that much or you know, that's, you know, that's not for me. That's not how men should be um, and all these things. And really when you start to dig into that, right, usually underneath, you keep going, keep asking questions. You ask about, you know, what's happened. And what it is, is there's a fear of feeling. There's a fear of feeling, especially feeling the low end, right? The, the, the low end of emotions when I say, and we'll call them the heavier ones, you know, things like shame, sadness, upset, loneliness, you know, depression. So because they don't want to feel that end of things, right? They try and block that off. 
But what happens is you also block off the, the top end of your emotions, the joy, the, the deep love, the passion, right? And you just become this middling numbness, right? And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this is, is you're just okay. When someone says, how are you feeling? You don't even know what to say other than, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. Oh, I'm not too bad, right? So what it is, is this idea that feeling low, feeling depressed, feeling unhappy, feeling sad, it's bad, right? And we're taught that we should, you know, avoid bad things, right? So, so when I start to really dig into this, it's like, is it really bad to feel sad? Is there something wrong with feeling sad? Is there really, is, it, is there times when feeling sad is good? We start getting into this, right? And every time I, it's, you know, without fail is when we start opening up that, that box and those feelings is that there's some feelings from the past that, you know, don't want to be really processed. And then when we start to process those, we start to go through those, whether that's therapy, maybe that is coaching, you know, whatever, maybe it's just breath work that you do, right? Whatever way that you choose to do that, it's like you start moving through them. You start to find that, you know, the other end, you start to feel more joy, more passion for life, but also start to feel more freedom, right? A lot of men are so obsessed with freedom. I want to feel free. I want to be in a relationship where I'm free. It's like, well, if you want to feel free, start getting involved with your emotions a bit more, right? And as you said, it's not a case of just vomiting them over everyone that you meet right? Is actually taking ownership for them, right? Responsibility for how you're feeling. So if you have past sadness, it's like, I'm responsible for this sadness. I'm responsible to process this sadness. And that might be speaking in a men's group. That might be speaking to the person that actually, you know, was on the other end of your sadness. I don't want to say cause your sadness because I don't think that other people cause emotion in us necessarily, right? We're reacting to some belief that we hold about ourselves usually, so it's a case of, like you said, you know, being responsible, regulating them themselves and finding ways to do that, right? And sometimes, you know, expression is a great one, you know, dance, talking and all these things. And I think that's the missing piece in deep connection that a lot of men don't realize is that, you know, I speak to a hell of a lot of women, you know, most of my following is women. I'm sure you experience the same thing, right? And they're like, I've just want a man who can speak about what's going on for him, what he's feeling, what he needs, what he wants, Right. And she, they, women say that, right? But what they don't want is a man who's just going to go, oh, I'm sad all the time. I'm really depressed. I don't know what to do. It's all your fault. And one man who said, you know what? I'm feeling really sad today. And I'm feeling sad because of this, this, and this, right? And, you know, I need to just be on my own for a little while, or I need to go for a run, or I need to do this. That has an ownership of like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I can do. Or even says, I'm feeling really rubbish right now. And I'm not sure what I can do about that, but I'm just going to sit with that because it's ownership, it's responsibility, right? Because it's not responsible to just suppress and repress and push them down. That's not being responsible because that blows up at some point in your life. Yeah, dude, I love that um, that piece there at the end of like taking ownership, but like not spewing it all over and not being this, you know, um, the word that comes to mind that I use is emotional wreck, but being like, I'm feeling shitty, I'm feeling sad i'm feeling off this is kind of how like i don't really know why or maybe this is the reason why and i'm not really sure what to do about it or i think i'm going to go for a run and try and clear my head and and try and process it right that's what we mean in this space uh, as being like in touch with your emotions and i think that's what um needs to be kind of emphasized when we talk about it i think you know we always say oh you got to be emotional like to be in touch with your emotions but it's like what does it actually look like being in touch with your emotions and i think that's the really um that's the goal of what you've just shared there man i, I really love that um and i wanted to um speak into that 
the kind of resistance that men have when you you identified this um, a few minutes ago is like we got we have this really strong idea of what it means to be masculine right essentially for the most part being masculine just is whatever's left over when we take out everything that we think is feminine right like that's the way masculinity is often framed in these in these spaces uh, in an unhealthy way um and so we have looked like and and you know I've, I've spoken to some other guys on the podcast about this because um masculinity isn't monolithic by any means um i, I believe there are masculinities plural um and so like specifically like in australia we have a particular type of like the Aussie larrikin um, version of like being a man. Um, and a lot of guys, I, I fit into that as well. Specifically when I, I studied and traveled in America, I really hyped up the kind of Aussie larrikin-ness, um, the Aussie bloke who drank a lot. Um, but I wanted to ask you maybe two specific questions here, man, for the next maybe 10 minutes or so as we close down the podcast is, um, is there what does it mean to be an English man, right? To be, or to be a, a, uh, I mean, the words that come through are maybe like a lad or a chav. I don't know if those are relevant. Those are just the ones that pop into my mind. Um, but then on top of that, man, I wanted to ask you um, this with regards to like being a uh, being a black guy in in England as well. What does it mean to be black as well? Um, and specifically English, I suppose, because I, I don't um, don't want to say that you can speak on behalf of other black dudes in America or, or other, other areas in the world. So those are my two questions, man. Um, I guess like lay it on top of one another. Is there a kind of quintessential English, you know, mentality with regards to being a man? And is there another one or is a layered one to being black as well? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Great question. Um, <clears throat> I actually visited Australia a number of years ago, probably, uh, probably going 10, 12 years ago now. So I got real direct experience of the, 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 the bogan. I, I love that phrase. What a beautiful phrase, bogan. <laughs> I spent time in Queensland, so I really felt that as well. And I know a lot of Aussies in the UK over the years. So I guess, as you said, masculinities is multi, it's multifaceted, right? It's not a singular thing. And I think this is one of the problems that a lot of us men have, is that we've seen it as singular. I think the, the idea of the the English man, the English lad, you know, you've got the the kind of English supporting, beer drinking, pub going lad, you know, who is, you know, a bit of a geezer, you know, is down for a laugh, wants to have a good time, wants to have fun, wants to have a few beers, wants to watch the football, wants to watch the, the cricket, maybe the rugby, right? And, you know, that kind of man who probably doesn't really express any feeling or emotion at all. You know, we'll talk about, sleeping with women in quite a derogatory term, you know, like, you know, when we always think about the ways in which men talk about having sex with women, it's always having sex is doing two. <laughs> it's doing two. I'm doing sex to her. You know, she is just almost like, it's almost talked as if she's a mannequin and I'm, I'm having sex with a mannequin. I'm doing it to her. It's all about me. It's very pers- It's very self-centered. Right. So, you know, the Eng- English lad was, you know, talk from that point of view, um, but then you've got nuances, right? You've got what we will call like, you know, the city boy, the wide boy, you know, the, the, the guy who's maybe a financer, he's a bit smoother. He probably a bit sleazy, maybe low on morals as well. You know, will say what he needs to say to get to where he wants to get to. Maybe that's been women, but also in the workplace could be quite cutthroat. You know, you find those guys on the trading floors or, you know, working in sales or recruitment. One of my best friends is a recruiter, but I know him well enough and I know the man he hangs around with as well, you know, the recruiter. And then you've kind of got another kind of English lad, which is, 
you know, what we'd often call maybe the tough or the upper class, more upper class gentleman who, you know, he might frequent polo. He might spend most of his time in West London. You know, again, he can actually be, you know, you stereotypically, you might look from my side, I'd look at him. So it's probably someone who's quite sexist, quite racist, very entitled, you know, about what's his and how everything should be. Everything should be done to suit him. So it is a really multifaceted way in terms of, of, of that from the masculinity. But there's there's always a common thing there. There's lacking is like, there's a lack of feeling, you know, there's a lack of feeling. There's a lack of even presence as well. You know, it's lack of presence to, to what's happening and everything is, you know, self-centered around them and what they need and what they want. And like you said, there's this pushing away of anything that is deemed to be feminine. Like there's a, I think there's a very common thread that runs through, let's call it traditional masculinity, right? Is that anything is feminine. Anything that's feminine isn't masculine. You know, and it shouldn't be contained in, in in masculine, right? And I think that's that's something that's just shifting and changing. So that would be my kind of concept to me, first of all, around the, the Englishman. And then being a black man, being a black Englishman, there's the nuances are it's a great question, you know, because it's had to make me really think. Because this has been my existence my whole life, you know, I've always been a black man, <laughs> as I say to people. Um but I've also lived in this world where I grew up in quite a white middle-class area. I've got a lot of friends who are Muslim as well. A lot of my best friends are Muslim. I just grew up. I played a lot of cricket when I was a kid. So, But there's a lot of expectations and ideas. Like if we go start with the sexually, right? You know, there's all the, the stereotypes around black men and penis size, right? That's a huge one, right? That's like black men and penis size. Like literally, I remember meeting women and the first question being asked was like, so how big is it? I remember being in cricket changing rooms when I was 13. I think this is one of the first instances where this stereotype was put onto me. I was at my crickets, uh, cricket club and I was playing, you know, one of the older, uh, in one of the older league games. And one of the guys on the pitch, he was just like, ah, oh, good to see you in a changing room. Hey, you boys got big ones. And I remember being like, whoa, you want to see my penis? That's really strange. And I was like 13 and this guy's probably early twenties. And I remember thinking that's really weird. And it actually quite scared me. I never went in that chain. I never went in the shower. I had this thing where I'd always go home and shower after the game. And I wonder if it part of that kind of sat inside that. I think also there's a pressure. Black men are highly sexualized, right? And I think part of that is, you know, we look at, you know, I my parents are Jamaican. So come from things like, you know, dance or music, which is very sexualized music, right? And you've got rap music again, highly sexualized. So I think that also then reflects on black men. And for me, it was how that affected me was that I didn't really, my dad is around, but he's a very emotionally distant man and my mom and dad not together. So I didn't have any kind of masculine role models growing up at all. And all the men that were boyfriends and husbands of my mother's friends were not the sort of, I clearly define them as men I don't want to be like. So what I had pushed onto me was this kind of black men are very sexual Black men are good in bed. Black men have big penises. Black men are all well-built. They're all sexy. And what that does is a bit like you said with the pedestal, right? Is it boxes you in, is that you can't be other things, right? Like I'm a quite a sensitive man. Like I feel, and I've wondered for many years is did I block that off because I was trying to be quote unquote, a man and a black man, the sort of black man that people wanted. So I was, you know, sleeping a lot of women, right? Wasn't talking about how I was feeling, you know, 
I was probably drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed. Like I was doing all those things. And it means that you get boxed in. So it's a really, it's a really interesting one, right? Because even as a British black man, it's this a slight different nuance from the American black man as well, right? And you know, you can break it down into like, my parents are Caribbean and not African. So we have certain things that we do around food and all sorts. But it is this pressure around dating and sex and like inside of dating the expectation is as a black man you're going to be dating multiple women because that's what black men do you know even culturally jamaicans and jamaican men i would say often have multiple children with multiple women you know like i've had questions early on in dating was like have you got any children i'm like no they're like really oh all the other black guys i've dated have had kids you know so it does come with that sort of stereotype pressure and I'd say one interesting thing, or the last thing I'll say is when I traveled, I remember meeting a lot of women and they'd be like, oh, you're the first black man I've been with, right? Or they'd say, you're the first black man I've really met and you're not like I thought you would be. And there's a real subtle thing in there. And I know some of my friends, when I've told them that they got very angry about that. And I don't because I... They know with me, they're comfortable to say that. They're voicing what's going on for them. And I'm open to hearing that. And I don't take that as any derogatory against me. They are admitting in that moment their own stereotypes that they're holding in their head. And they're also admitting that I've now, to a certain degree, broken that stereotype, right? So it's it does come with this idea. I think the funniest situations are when women meet me or they see me you know, when I was on my dating, expecting me, me to be this kind of hood, 50 cent, type gentleman and then I walk in and I'm like you know I remember at a date I went on I was reading a book um, about western philosophy it was a massive thing it was like the bible it was a huge book and I went on this date and I put the book down on the table and talked to this woman and she was like why are you reading that and I remember in my head thinking ah you don't think I'm going to be reading this book but I'm reading this book's really good like you know it's that sort of thing where people have this idea of who you're going to be and when you show up in something different how they deal with that. Yeah, that's so um, valuable of an insight to hear, man. Thank you for for sharing. And um, I guess the reason why I asked as well is because like I recognize I've got my own stereotypes that I'm, you know, consciously and, and trying to process and the biases that I hold. And, um, you know, like in, like if I reflect on my own friend group, I suppose, like I don't have a lot of black friends here in Australia. Um, and that's maybe a, geographical thing because there's uh, you know in terms of percentages and um demographics there's not as many black people here in australia i suppose but um yeah and, and so something that i really try and do particularly because of the work that i'm doing is working with men you know um i noticed that a lot of my clients are are people that share my own lived experience so they're white dudes right i've been a white man my whole life um so a lot of the guys that i work with have been white men their whole life as well um and and so I, i'm wondering man do you um do you, do you see a similar thing in your own work? Do you get a lot of, um, would you get black guys maybe feeling more comfortable speaking to you about masculinity and, and men's work and dating uh, because you're black and because you can kind of share that lived experience with them? Mm. It's an interesting one, actually, because, and this is part of my own uh, assumptions about myself, right? Is there something that I kind of dug into with my therapist last year? especially with last year, with everything that happened last year, it was around my own blackness and not feeling black enough. This is something I spoke to other black people about. It's like, oh, I don't feel black enough because 
I can't cook rice and peas and curry goat, you know. Uh, I don't feel black enough because I speak with uh, a nice, clean English accent, you know. And, you know, so with my with my clients, I have a real mix, actually, of clients from, from, from like, white men, uh, Muslim men, a lot of Muslim guys come to me for help. And I do, I have had a few black clients and I find that the odd black man pops up on, online, you know, to talk to me, but not maybe as many as I'd like to, if I'm honest. Like I would love more black men to enter into this type of work. I think there's a, from a UK point of view, I think there is a huge gap when it comes to this deeper connection, whether that's sexually, relationally, or emotionally work in with, with black people in the UK. There's, you know, it's a very, in the UK here, it's very much uh, uh, a kind of a, a white embodiment of, of connection, right? That's very much how it is. Like if I go even further than that, I think most of it's really, mainly comes from women. There's not even that many men speak in this space as much. So I would love to speak to more black men. Like, and it's something that I, I know I have in my focus actually going forward is to, to bring more black men into, the, into, this, into this conversation. But I do find that they do pop up and they're like, it's almost like a surprise. They're like, wait, there's a black man here and he's talking about feelings and emotions and connecting. And there's almost sometimes like a bit like, hey, like, you know, so I'm, I'm finding more. It used to be less, but there's more coming forward now. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that kind of, if I reflect on my own experiences, man, of going to workshops, of running events, of attending festivals, uh, here in Australia, at least, it's very whitewashed. Right? I know we've got you know um, communities like we've got black communities, we've got Asian communities, we've got um, like there's a lot of um, Indian people here in Western Australia, at least anyway. But when I look at an event that I've either hosted or attended, it is 99% white people, and it's that a, a particular type of white person as well. It's the I kind of think of it as like the white spiritual person, um, and and so it, and you know and, and I'm I kind of look at it. I'm like, how do I? What do I do? How do I improve inclusivity? How do I how do I improve diversity here? Because um, it becomes a little echo chamber. Then, uh, unfortunately, right when you've only got people that have the similar lived experience. Um, so I appreciate you you sharing, man, and and, and it does reflect my own. Um, my own experience over the last kind of five or six years kind of doing this work is that it's, it's, it's surprising. I will say, um, to, to, to see black dudes doing this work because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always just looking for, for, um, yeah, people that aren't white, I suppose, doing this work so that I can learn from them. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, just, it's just lovely to speak to, to yourself, man. And, and to have that element of, this particular work kind of brought in because I don't think it's talked about enough. Mm -mm. Why, why do you think that, why do you think in Australia is so, as you said, whitewashed? Look, man, I think it's, um, I think there's an accessibility thing here as well. Like the people that go to events have money, you know what I mean? Like you, you have, you pay to go to an event and, um, and so there's a socioeconomic element to this um, with regards to uh, people in maybe uh, race and ethnicities being in different socioeconomic classes. So I think that's probably an element of it. Um, there could also be a, um, I'm thinking maybe there's a language barrier as well. I know a lot of the um, 
particularly the uh, Asian community here in in Perth, um, in Western Australia, like there's a lot of people speak Chinese, a lot of people speak um, Mandarin, and uh, as their first language, or if not something that they um, they're encouraged to speak at home at least, uh, with regards to you know um, growing up as a um, you know, born in Australia, but kind of speaking Mandarin at home. So there's possibly like a language cultural thing there as well. I think like a lot of our a lot of the teachers as well aren't representative of those communities. Like all the teachers that I kind of see are white. There's not a lot of indigenous teachers um, at these events. There's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of color. I will say right on the panel of of um, of teachers that are at an event. So I think there's a whole host of things that kind of play into the reason why there is a certain block of people that attend events. Um, particularly here in Western Australia, we do have a small community. So I will, um, I will throw that in there as well. We're not Melbourne or Sydney with a massive population. So uh, yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting thing, man. It's something I've been grappling with for a, a good couple of years um, when I started to kind of consciously work on my own biases and, and subconscious kind of stereotypes as well. So it's just been something that I, um, I want to, I want to try and have more conversations, but I recognize my own, privilege and my own limitations with regards to having these conversations i try and platform um people as much as possible uh, i try and cite other people's work as much as possible because um, i know that i can speak to you know masculinity from us from a, a certain perspective from a certain lens um but i acknowledge like i said before that masculinity isn't monolithic and that there's so many other nuances to the way that men of different races religions nationalities um expect that they should be a man as well which is why i was so grateful for you to share your own man so yeah it's just a um i'd love to have more conversations about it man and that's something i, I kind of plan to do going forward with the podcast is to try and um try and find guys that are willing to have conversations like this so yeah thanks for thanks for um keeping inspiring me to do that man thank you no, thank you for having me as well like <laughs> It is a really, you're right, it's, it's something I see as well with things. It's like, it's a bit like how we, as, as, as a man, I start to become really aware of, uh, do I see an event and it's all just a panel of men, right? And um, it's like, ah, oh, should that be a panel of just men? You know, is it just talking about, you know, something that's really men? So now with the, the lens of especially the last year, everything has happened, uh, especially last year, is I also look at panel events and I'm like, ah, oh, there's no one of color there. Like, you know, it's even my partner also who you had on the episode, she did a, a pleasure panel. Um, and at one point she was like, okay, I want a balance of men and women. And I said, let's get a balance of color. Can we get a balance of color as well? She was like, ah, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you. And she was like, thank you for bringing that into my awareness because otherwise I'm not going to think of that because it's not something I consciously, I don't feel excluded, right? Whereas I think, as you said, I think a lot of communities feel very excluded from the, the consciousness movement. Um, they feel very excluded from the, the conscious sexuality movement because like you said, they don't see people that reflect them, that reflect their lived experience. And they've probably had experiences where they've gone into places where they are the only black person, the only Asian person, and they feel very othered. They feel very rejected. Um, and it's a really interesting one because I'm so used to being the only black man in the room. I'm so used to it now, right? When I go to events and stuff, that if there's another black man there, I'm like, oh, why are you here? 
<laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, um, dude, I, I'm just mindful of time and I want to say a huge thank you for, for um, yeah, just letting me ramble. I feel like I rambled a couple of times, but, you know, listening to my rambles and bouncing off me and, and sharing some really beautiful um, insights. Um, I, I've got a lot of time for you, man, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing and um, and thank you for, for joining me for the last hour or so. I really appreciate it. Oh man, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was, it was always a pleasure to hear, man. I love your, I love your content. I love reading your posts and watching your videos. So you know, it's a, it's a real honor for me to be here today. Thanks, man. Thanks. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Men, Sex, and Pleasure podcast. If you find value from this content, then I encourage you to consider becoming a patron on my Patreon account. You can find the link for that in the description below. You'll have access to a whole bunch of perks, including behind-the-scenes podcast footage, as well as pre-release YouTube videos and patron-only writing, as well as the opportunity to have your name either shown in a YouTube video or read out in a thank you during the podcast. So, like I said, if you enjoy this content and you'd like to support it and support me, then head to the link in the show notes below and consider becoming a patron. Thank you.